Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me is the professor, Alan Jameson. What is the soundtrack playing in your brain right now, Alan? Oh, you never give me a heads up on that. I've no idea. It's definitely going to be that Maori one, the one you sent me. Oh, Tangaroa. Yeah. Oh, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah, what's the band called again? Alien Weaponry. It's a song called Tangaroa. It's good. Did you see the video? Yeah. Cool video as well, isn't it? It is. It's three lads from New Zealand. Singing in Maori. Yeah, it's all about how, because Tangaroa is the Maori god of the sea. And it's all about how we've messed up the sea. And it's very angry. Which gives Niwa one of their vessel names. One of the research vessels is Tangaroa. Yes. Good song. Well remembered. Yeah, no, it had an impact. Really? Yeah. You said, you know, let's do it a couple of times. Let's tune in. But metal and Maori go together pretty well. And I think I agree. They do, don't they? Yeah. It's a really good blend. Yeah. Alien Weaponry is the name of the band. Cool. I will name. put it in the show notes. Good. Cool. And you are fairly busy currently. Well, you shouldn't even be here for I a start. I'm supposed to be at sea right now. Uh, and I will be as of in about 24 hours. But uh, I was supposed to have left three days ago. But my son got COVID. So delayed the whole thing. He's okay now. He can speak again. He lost his voice for a while. No one else in the house got COVID, which is bizarre, given he was really quite ill. So tomorrow we'll go down the ship, test everything, check everything's compatible with the ship. Never been on the ship before. Never used these landers before. Never had this crew before. Guaranteed surprises. Guaranteed surprises. Got to check things like voltages and frequencies of battery <laughs> chargers, all that kind of carry on. I've spent six months building this incredibly delicate piece of equipment and you plug it in the wrong socket. Bang. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Done, gone. That's 20 grand of smoke, that is. Yeah. That blue smoke, the one that smells like melting plastic, that's 20 grand. Yeah, yeah I'm quite looking forward to it because I've been working on the same ship for the last, what, three years. It's been a long time since I've been on a new ship with a different crew, different captain, different people. It's good to get back out in the field. I'm getting restless. I think this is the longest I've not been to sea. Oh, I've had enough of the field. Well, yeah, you were, you were hijacked. You were stolen to the sea for a good while. I've had quite a good run, actually, during COVID. I've done quite a you lot. You just couldn't stop. Even right back at the start. We did the whole Eastern Mariana and Black Hole jobs, and then we did more Mariana, Philippine Trench, East Indian Ocean. We had a great run. The best time to travel was during the pandemic, because there's just nobody about. The airports were empty. It was brilliant. You could lie across three seats. Yeah. What has the run-up been like? It's the most stressful part, I find. Like, I quite enjoy it once I'm out yeah. at sea, but I find the, the prep and the mob really, really stressful, because I, I have this, like, waking nightmare of everything going wrong because i don't have a one dollar piece of like you know usb to usb c connector or something there's something like really mundane that the whole thing is falling apart because i didn't pack it yeah i mean we bought a lot of the gear last year so we just built three full ocean depth rated landers with between them there's like four hd video cameras and two current mirrors oxygen sensors one's got a whole bunch of interesting trap designs on it and there's been massive delays in getting stuff cameras we ordered have taken nine months to arrive rather than what's normally i would say six or eight weeks so you know there's just a massive supply chain issues all over the place so that that was annoying but we managed to get it all in time we managed to find a really good fabricator in in perth so i just after christmas i did all the drawings for the landers i'm still i'm still the mechanical engineer despite all the promotions and we found this really cool guy called Bart, who him and his mate just knocked him up very, very quickly. They look nice. Yeah, look very, very, very cool. And then we don't have any engineering space on the campus. There's another place uh, called Shannon, which is just up the road. Only because like flumes, you know, these big experimental engineering flume things. We've got some space in there to build them all, which was quite a significant spider habitat. <laughs> and, uh, you still live in the wildlife? Yeah, so we did all that, got all the stuff down at the ship, and came back last Tuesday night and walked in the front door and it's like, oh, Remember that funny thing that you kept testing negative for? He's just tested positive for it. And it's like, you are kidding. Oh, it's good to break the monotony. 
And it was just frustrating because there was a big ramp up to it. But the biggest thing with going to see in a place like this is the bureaucracy of getting permits. That's been the big thing. That's, I mean, I've not taken the brunt of that. The guy I work with has taken the brunt of that. And it's, yeah, you need federal permission, states, marine parks involved. You need cetacean licenses. We have to do all these animal ethics permits. Then, you know, one, you can't get one without another one. Or you can't get that one without another one. And there's a whole bunch of layers to it. And it's just really, really frustrating. I mean, part of me was just thinking to just run the entire expedition. 201 nautical miles offshore it was always it's just the, the bureaucracy here is just off the charts and sometimes doesn't really make a lot of sense lots of emphasis on marine mammals and where you can kind of can't do so like halfway through this trip for example we have to switch off the sonar at night and try and keep the ship stable because we might hit a pygmy whale in the dark that's a genuine thing which i find really really difficult to get my head around when it's on a major shipping lane in and out of australia that's the so. bit that the bugs may like that they don't know the difference between a research vessel and a you know 200 meter long super tanker but yeah they are they are not restricted in the same way you guys are yeah if we put a couple of containers full of plastic toys from china we could just rock in whatever time of day it doesn't really matter charge through at full speed well because we're scientists the chances are we're going to start ramming whales so we better not it's not quite as black and white as that but it is quite frustrating yeah, you've got a container ship charging past you on one side, and on the other side, after you've filled out all your ethical stuff, there is a fishing vessel just murdering yeah. <laughs> tons and tons of yeah. sea life. But you, but both of those are free. Yeah. Oh, that might not work. So, yeah, there's lots of peculiarities like that. I think the things are actually they're actually good. It's just frustrating when you're playing by the rules and you're really impacted and hindered by them, and other far more present and far more damaging groups are sort of waved through. That's where it gets frustrating. And I think everyone after the last two years can kind of feel that frustration where you've been you've been really impacted by some rules and then you watch a bunch of toddlers in soft play coughing into each other's eyes. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, is is everything I'm doing futile? Because the things I'm doing are really yeah. impacting my life. But I feel like yeah. they're futile when I look at that as the as the container ship goes past you and the fishing vessel goes by the other yeah. way. <laughs> bobbing like a cork in the dark trying not to hit whales <laughs> yeah but you know it will be interesting so we're going to go down 200 miles south to the eastern end of the diamantina fracture zone which is about six and a half thousand meters deep and we'll deploy everything there repeatedly for a week and that's part of what's called the cape Lewin manganese nodule field the whole east indian ocean appears to be a big massive manganese nodule field the, the depths in which we work at happen to be the depths that where all manganese can form Mm. Right, so it's part of the habitat. It's part of the suite of habitats we have to assess. If we're going to understand what happens between, let's say, four and six and a half thousand meters in the East Indian Ocean, a lot of that will be manganese nodule fuel. So we just have to treat it the same as if it was soft sediment. But it is an abundant habitat. It looks like everything south of the Diamantina Fraga Zone is a quite a considerable size of manganese nodule fuel, but not north. So oh. we're going to sort of play around with that. But then the second half is going to be the cool bit. The second half, I think the deep bit is interesting, but probably not spectacular. It's going to be interesting to see what lives at the deep end. I think it's possibly even the deepest point of Australia. And then we're going to go up over what's called the Naturalist Plateau, which comes right up to 2,000 metres. And there's a big plateau that sticks out the southwest corner of Australia. But it's, the depths between two, three, four thousand 4,000 metres are not well represented on the continental shelf because it drops off so quickly. So there's a whole band of what is normally a really interesting fish community should all be rammed into this plateau. <laughs> if you want to be at 3,000 metres anywhere else in Australia, you've just got this little slither along a very steep wall. So... It's either going to be the dullest thing we've ever done or something quite significant. don't know. But as I say, no one's really done much out there, so we've got really nothing to go on. Brilliant. That's what makes it exciting. Yeah. The deep spots are unusual as well, because this isn't a subduction trench, is it? It's a it's a Hadal environment that isn't a subducting trench. Yeah, it's a fracture zone. So it's just the plate has just been pulled apart. It's not seismic. 
It doesn't have the big sloping sides. It's literally a crack, so you can get down at the bottom of the crack. Chances are you're not going to get in the walls unless you've got the sub, which we don't have the sub this time around. So it's kind of going back to the good old days. I'm just scattered gunning with the lander. Hopefully we'll get about, hopefully something like 40 landers done in 14 days. Something nice. Like. Busy, busy. Weather permitting, of course. What's it like out there? Uh, Not good. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, right now it's going to be good. It's by the end of, between now and the end of the week, it's going to be lovely. We have been checking the weather. Had we gone out when we were originally supposed to leave, we probably would be not in a good position right now. Oh, right. Oh, well, that's something at we, least. We'd be out the back of it. We wouldn't have had a good week. It was probably better. It was in self-isolation. The better news is uh, I'll do that for 14 days and come back home for, what, four days, four or five days and jump on a plane to good old UK. Yay! So the next podcast might be the second time ever we've done this in the same room. We'll, yeah. get, we'll get the room again with the mega silence. We'll somehow blag the studio again, have a little face-to-face podcast, and I'm sure there'll be the occasional beverage, but it's mainly about the podcast. Sort of goal-orientated, very dedicated presenters. And across my mind, we go out drinking. One sort of little white wine seltzer, you know, just to, just to celebrate the reunion, yeah. but we won't let it get out of hand. A nice brandy over an open fire. Surrounded by <laughs> leather-bound books. Yeah, one of those. Absolutely. Yeah, that'll be it. That's Newcastle written all over it. <laughs> Both Newcastle and us. Yeah, yeah. What else is going on? Has any recent news caught your eye? I saw a nice one about the Octopus Garden was found, I think it was back in 2014. Uh, it's located at the base of the Davidson Seamount, so just over 3,000 metres deep, 3,200 metres deep. And there are thousands of this abyssal octopus, Muscoctus robustus. When this octopus garden was first found, they realised a lot of the females were brooding eggs. So it was obviously like a breeding ground. And the water temperature there is pretty cold. It's a 1.6 degrees Celsius. So the original thought was, based on other known octopuses breeding in cold water, that they would have to brood these eggs for in excess of 10 years. So do you remember a few years back, there was loads of the best parrots are octopus, basically, uh, and that they brood their eggs for years and years and years and years, and years based on this discovery. And it is actually based on a uh, another species, Granandalone Boreo Pacifica, and that lives at 3.5 degrees centigrade. And that is known to brood for 1,590 days, which is the current record for longest brooding animal and so when they scaled that temperature to what the octopus in the octopus garden are living at that was like 10 years of brooding so that seemed just crazy high but hey where is this seamount which geographically where is it it's near the u.s Uh, i think it's off california oh wow um so yeah fairly well studied they visited a lot with the subs once they found it so recently they've realized that actually they're brooding in a warm seep they're brooding where some geothermal energy is coming up And that is making where they're brooding their eggs, on average, about 5.1 degrees C, rather than the super cold 1.6 degrees C. So based on our understandings of how temperature affects the development, that reduces the incubation period right down to 623 days. So it still ages, and it still likely sets the record for the longest brooding animal, at least that we know about. But that massively, massively reduces their brood time. So this is obviously why they're selecting this area to let their eggs develop, to accelerate that time so they're not having to hang around and and brood them for that long. Uh, Which reminds me of the ice fish we were chatting about with Orton. Mm -hmm. He didn't feel that the temperature accelerating development was a big sort of factor in them. It was only, I think it was only a couple of degrees in that instance. I think that has still quite an impact. And the fact that the fish were in different locations depending on where that warm current was going like maybe they used it as a device so they all knew where to gather but i think if it's shaved 
a week off your gestation time, then I think that's still worth doing it. That's one week less where the, the adult isn't starving and one week less where you've got to defend it from predators. And also our little Hadal snailfish, when Mackenzie Geringer did the, the oxygen isotope analysis in the otoliths, so the ear bones, that indicated that when they were juvenile, they had an elevated temperature. And something I've been pondering for a little while now is rather than them coming up and being pelagic, is I think in the Hadal trenches, Based on this as well, I'm getting more and more confident that the snailfish are brooding somewhere where there's a source of heat, basically, to accelerate their own maturation. I think the, the young are living in somewhere that's a little bit warmer. So maybe a similar situation there, but we haven't found it yet. But uh, that's, a, that's a job for you, Alan. If you can, if you can find that, please, that'd be lovely. We need a submarine. That's what you need. We need a submarine. Are they expensive? Yes, we're planning. We're planning a couple of snailfishy type of trips for the end of this year. Excellent. Blitz the Japan Trench and then hopefully Tonga Trench. Japan one's an interesting mm. one. When the Fukushima nuclear power plant went a bit squiffy, for want of a more nuclear term, sent out a lot of cesium-137, which is uh, an unfortunate thing to happen, but it's also a very convenient radioisotope tracer. It has a half-life, I think, of 22 years or something like that, so if we get their otoliths, we can use that Fukushima radioisotopes to age them. Because we had a chat previously about sort of using the growth rings on deep-sea animals but the assumption is that they're seasonal rather than like a whale fall or some other advantage meant that this animal grew quickly for this period of time. But with this known pulse... So if there's 12 rings yeah. since the cesium, then you've got 12 years of since Fukushima, right? Yeah. Not just It's not just snailfish, we'll do the whole thing, but uh, yeah, we're going to dive on the triple junction up there, which is geologically very interesting, and uh, both sides of the trench, big snailfish thing. Multiple species in there of things well. that don't understand, this is going to have to do with animal reproduction at all, but if you go down to the Philippine Plate, which is near the Mariana, sort of west of the Mariana, there's a place called the Godzilla Mega Mullion. <laughs> That's and come I've, up I've before. Read it. I know, I've read it a couple of times, I still don't get it. Because we're, we're going to be very, very close. There's an opportunity to actually go there, but I can't justify it because of the fact I don't understand what it is. We, you asked Heather about that, didn't you? And well, she couldn't explain it either. It was some sort of rock secrets. Yeah, but now it's a genuine potential target because we, we could build that into the schedule. The Godzilla Mega Million. Maybe you can finally figure out what it is. Some sleeping well, beast. I don't know. People have written papers on it. I still don't get it. But... <laughs> That's a lot of words and I still don't know what it is. Yeah, so we've designed a new trap to try and trap some of these deep-sea fish so we can learn more about their biology and reproductive and stuff like that. So I'll let you know in the next podcast how that goes because we're going to trial it on this next trip. Different way of catching deep-sea fish because deep-sea fish don't behave like normal fish. In fact, hadal fish don't it's behave like fish. It's fish. That, it's that crossover. Yeah. So if you want to catch a, a grenadier, you just put a mackerel in a fish trap and it'll find its way in. If you want to catch a basosius, I think you have to actually roll your sleeves up and start wading into the water to wrestle it yourself because they just don't go into anything. They don't do anything. They just stare at you the whole time. So, And snailfish seem to be relatively easy caught if you get them in the right mood, if you get the right trap, which is a whole different trap to a grenadier. They're confident and quite spatially aware. They, they seem happy to mill around in complex habitats, whereas the cuskeels, they're not willing to enter a confined space. Yeah, I think those, those three families require three different technologies to catch. I agree with that. I'm really excited to see what comes of that so one. We're going to trial out some new interesting ones. Because it's about what's motivating the animals as well. Like in the abyssal depths, like they are scavengers. So they, they are going to find their way to the bait and they'll almost help you by getting into the trap. Yeah. And then once you go hadal, they tend to be predators that are feeding on the other scavengers. So they're not as they're not as drawn, they're not as sort of incentivized to enter a confined space because they're not actually interested in the bait so much. No, it's, it's all been built from uh, parts from DIY stores around Perth and some <laughs> uh, fishing shops. 
some of the best <laughs> stuff is. Really high tech stuff. I think we need to move more into that and go back to some more classical biology. Yeah. Yeah. Because we've been yeah. filming these things for such a long time now and we're still not quite sure what they are. No idea what they do, no idea how old they are, no idea how many times they reproduce. It all seems to be a bit... need to get your mitts on. And that's all because we're just very, very difficult to catch. You know, one of the things, going back to the, the permit story about it's really, really difficult because you have to do this whole animal ethics permitting as well. And they, they ask very, very, very specific questions about how you're going to take this animal, how many how many are you going to take? And you're like, probably none. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, been, it's a very regulated mm. industry because nobody wants... We want to kill a fish, but we need to kind of understand the entire population. So, you know, we're not a heavy industrial trawler. We'll be happy if we get one of each species. But then the heavy industrial trawlers are less restricted. They have their fishing quotas, but having seen it firsthand, I don't think there's a great deal of like animal welfare being considered. No, no. No, it's an interesting exercise. I think maybe we should even think about publishing our just our recent experiences and stuff like this because it is quite relevant. I mean, I, I even emailed you and... Jeff Drazen and Monty Priad, who were both on the podcast before, because we've got interesting questions regarding what point does the animal die? Because we all know that deep sea fish don't survive to the surface, so at what point do they? And do they suffer? Yeah, you know, and between us, I think we kind of admitted that it's not nobody really truly knows. We can sort of work stuff out. It was a weird multi-stage problem because we seem to come to the conclusion that they are still alive until a few hundred meters. But because of the pressure difference affecting their nerve activation, they are insensible and sort of not able to perceive distress. They're essentially unconscious without, you know, conscious is a loaded term, but they are, they are no longer aware of any suffering for much, much longer than that. So the writing of, of the legislation was when does it die rather than when is it rendered unable to suffer? But uh, we, yeah, yeah, we should we should write that paper, and I, I'm well up for doing an episode on it as well. Animal welfare is a, a big thing for me. It's not a nice subject, I must admit, but it is ultimately every single sample that you've ever seen in a jar or museum has yeah. been an animal that someone's taken from the environment for whatever reason. But, uh, and because it's not a nice subject, all the more reason to look at it factually rather than sort of pretending it doesn't happen. Yeah, but then there are benefits to it. You know, we're not just doing it because for fun, we're doing it because we want to understand things like, you know, reproductive cycles and... Yeah. Seasonality and aging and toxicology and environmental pollution and all these other things that we'll never get to know unless we take a few voucher specimens. Everybody, it's funny because everyone wants new species, but no one really wants to think about the fact that that new species was alive. Yeah. And the only way you can describe a species is if you kill it. So it's part of the job, I guess. It's whether there's sort of net good to that, because we get the odd email calling us horrible because we killed these animals. And I, I'm sort of agreeing with that. But then I'm like, but this is good because this is an animal you didn't even know about. And now you're angry. Now you're like a champion for that animal and you'll defend it. And I, I, I'm almost willing to be the bad guy in order for you to then feel that way. And maybe if somebody's talking about climate change or, or damage to that habitat or anything else, you'll actually have an opinion. Whereas if we hadn't done that, no one would know these animals existed. So I'm, I'm kind of up for I'm up for taking that ethical hit because I think a lot more good then comes from that. I'm happy to be the bad guy because I think that generates more good down the line. Every person who emails me angry, I'm just like, yes, you should be angry. Now, now go. <laughs> so from now on, you're officially the bad guy. I'll do it, yeah. Yeah, I'll take that hit. Sweet. It's a secretly moral Sweet. bad guy. There's something to be said for being the anti-hero. You know, some of us can't help it. We try to be the bad guy, but we just always come out smelling like roses. <laughs> Mentioning no one in particular. Nah. Nah, nah. Another interesting piece of news. It's not super deep sea currently, but I found it really interesting. Fabian Cousteau, grandson of Jacques Cousteau, is building underwater houses, underwater labs. 
and, mm. and hoping to get the first one in about 20 meters of water, so about 60 feet, uh, off Curacao 2025. So fairly soon. This came uh, up in a conversation recently. Oh, yeah. With a, I won't mention any names, but a, a person that we both know, they spent a couple of weeks in the underwater habitat. I think it used to be was it off Hawaii or something. This is Aquarius, is it? I think so, yeah. It's the one where you have to go poo in an air bubble when all the fish come and eat the poo at your bottom when you're doing it. That one. <laughs> yeah, you know, listener, that one. Yeah, yeah, that one, yeah. <laughs> hey, apparently, he ended up covered in fungus. Oh. Just for being so damp for so long. But he basically had trench foot all over. Ooh. It's, yeah. When I heard that, I'm like, okay. There was really interesting little asides to this because this is only only 20 meters only 60 feet but there was like living under that elevated pressure for these long periods normal household chemicals i think they mentioned soap in the press release mm. like becomes toxic and any naked flame you know anything's going to burn much much more rapidly so there's weird things where it's not like you just get down there and then it's like it's just like a normal day it's like oh no the the fairy liquid's eating through my hand <laughs> nothing can be taken for granted like the rules change on everything and that's just on fairly sort of shallow dive grow a whole fungal suit by the end of the trip and then when you finally get let out and you come to surface you can just take it off like a wetsuit and people are like wow would you get that awesome wetsuit because it's not a wetsuit that's just fungus you go full symbiont harmonize with it so you essentially become venom but it's fungus yeah you start talking to your own fungal suit yeah or for the extra nerdy amongst us the god emperor of dune if anyone's been reading the Ah, dune books after the film yeah that's a good one that's a Ah. that's a living suit you know what the gom jabbar is have you been reading? <laughs> you didn't them? think I would know that, right? No, I like that. I like that. I hold yeah. against your neck the Gomjabar. Mm. Have you read them? Nah. I like the later ones. They get nuts. They get nuts and they get sexy. Really? Yeah. Turns out everything's just being controlled by sexy nuns behind the scenes. Also, for, for, the, for the benefit of the listeners as well, we should probably apologise for uh, last month's episode when Don Walsh went totally dirty grandpa on us. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that story of his about being groped under the table on cruise liners had really genuinely nothing to do with Deep Sea. It was a proper like dirty grandpa moment. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping no one was too offended by that. We don't have any much control over what Don says. No one can control Don Walsh. It's a force of nature. I kept it in because it seemed even-handed. Maybe everyone can be terrible at once. <laughs> I remember listening to it thinking, oh, where are you going with this, Grandpa? Where are you going with this? And at the end of it, it's like, this is really nothing to do with Deepsea at all. <laughs> but hey, you know what? You know, whatever. It was interesting. Yeah, just let him off the reins. You can see what you want when you're 87 years old. Everyone tells us that Don's the favourite part, so uh, there you go, a bit of an unfiltered Don. <laughs> <laughs> the other story was... I feel like we might have covered this, or maybe there was like a press release when they first found it, but there was there was a big paper out on the the early vampire squid. We chatted about this on um, on Mike's episode, Mike Vicioni, on the when we called him on the squid phone, about the sort of origin of the current cephalopods, so the sort of eight and ten arm thing. So mm-hmm. there's recently, well, not even recently, recently described, but actually that would had this fossil since the like 1985 or something like that, I think it was. But properly assessed it now, it's a rare fossil that has soft parts preserved, because of course that's always the difficulty with fossils. So apparently there's something interesting about the vampiroids chemistry that actually makes their soft tissue preserve a little bit better. Um, so basically it's pushed them back 82 million years 
They now align with the molecular clocks that were done. So basically looking at their sort of molecular progression of the of the current vampire squids, that let us know that they should have originated here, but there were no fossils from then. So this fossil pushes them back and actually aligns with those molecular clocks that were done. So 328 million years ago, this is that first fossil. It superficially resembles a modern squid rather than what we'd consider a vampire squid. And mm -hmm. it supports the idea that the ancestral state was to have 10 arms. So to have 10 identical arms, and we chatted about this a little bit. Not the modified. Not the modified. Then two become modified, and they become specialized tentacles. And that's where we see our squids and cuttlefish that are currently going. And then those two arms are later lost, and they're seen as vestigial filaments in the current extant vampire squids, which are not actually squids, as Mike pointed out. They're sort of closer to the octopods. And th this is why, basically, because there's just filaments remaining of those two specialized tentacles, and they're lost completely in the octopods. So this new finding actually challenges the current belief, which is that they descended from the uh, ten-armed belemnoids. Uh, which is an extinct group. Mike mentioned those as well. So yeah, just an interesting progression of the sort of ancient to modern cephalopods. And they, they weirdly named it after um, Joe Biden, because when they submitted the article, he'd recently been inaugurated as president. And I was thinking that there might be some interesting reference there. There might be like something about that. It's just big dual fans. They erected a new genus as well. And that had a nice logical Greek mythology origin for it. I, th I thought that was a bit strange to burden an animal with that. <laughs> Probably should have a little mention that the Endeavour was found. Shackleton's boat. Oh, yeah, that was cool, wasn't it? That was amazing. It looks new. I mean, it's got things growing on it, but it's, it's untouched. And there is an interesting reason for that. Yes. Well, this is something that Adrian Glover and I did. In fact, Adrian did it. I just built some gear that took your stuff down. We used to deploy whale bones all over the place trying to look for these Ossidax bone-eating worms and stuff like that. And uh, I built him some gear and he put it down in Antarctica and one of the interesting results was he put some wood packages on there as well and it came back after whatever it was, 12 months or something. And this this has gone back a fair bit. I think the paper came out in 2013, but I think we did it in like 2010 or 11 or something. We were writing the paper together and with a few other people and he was kind of like, this is really amazing because there are no wood-boring worms in Antarctica. No trees in Antarctica, right? I believe we actually specified in the paper that if that were true, then wooden shipwrecks such as the Endeavour should still be whole because what breaks down a shipwreck when it's made of wood is actually organisms little wood gribbles and all that kind of stuff, they basically mechanically bore through it and then the, the, the structural integrity eventually decreases and eventually collapses and after 100 years, you know, that's what's going to get it. As opposed to metal ships where it's mostly microbial or, or just corrosion. When that came up and I saw that, I was like, yeah, Adrian was right, good man. I'll put it in the show notes. Wood is an interesting sort of biological invention and I think it has a lot of parallels to our current plastic worries because when wood was like biologically invented nothing could break it down. It was like a pollutant. Mm. And that's why we have coal, because there was nothing to break down wood when it was first invented. So things had to evolve in order to eat wood. And so, yeah, there was loads of wood just lying around, because it's a great thing for the trees to have invented, because it allows far more structural support and they can get much bigger. But biology hadn't evolved something to clean it up. And it feels a lot like the current plastic issue. Something will come along that can break it down. Does that mean for millions of years there would have been just like wood chippings and bark and twigs and trunks just lying everywhere and everything yeah, had not, to stomp across them? Not even chippings. Like, so a tree would fall over and it would just be a tree for a long time. <laughs> Touching yeah. upon wood being indigestible and plastic being our current and similar issue, the Galathea legacy is out. John Quentin, yes. who we interviewed on the sub-episode, which I think is episode 13, 
So jump back to that if you want to hear from him. The book has been released. I've got a copy. I like the cover art he picked. It's very cool. That's yeah. quite striking. The purple and blue jellies. I spoke to him last week for the first time in a while, and he's still listening to the podcast. So hi, John. Hi, John. <laughs> Plug, 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 Yeah, so if anyone ends up picking it up, I'll put a link in the show notes, but give him a review because that's how all of these things work. You do a little forward to the book, Alan. You get mentioned on the cover as well. I know. I didn't know that was going to happen. Thanks, John. When I'm talking to people, one of the things I say is the most exciting and rewarding part of my job. And one of the things that really makes me feel incredibly lucky to do it is that I often get to see things for the very first time. Our lander systems come up, we pop out the memory card, and there is a good chance there'll be something on there that no human being has seen before. And I feel incredibly lucky to be the human being that is the first to see this. And it turns out that maybe that's not such a unique experience anymore. Nowadays, anyone with an internet connection can share in that experience. Our listeners may not be aware, there is actually multiple projects which live stream their deep sea exploration. So with just a couple of seconds delay, you can be present for deep sea discoveries and never before scenes as they are happening. The big players in this space are Schmidt Ocean Institute. They have started to live stream a lot of their dives with Sebastian, their ROV, Nautilus Live from the Ocean Exploration Trust, and NOAA Ocean Exploration with the Oceanus Explorer. Because of how the data is shared live with anyone who wants to watch it, communities have grown up around it. There are Twitter hashtags, Discord channels, online forums, where you can watch along and see discoveries as they happen and forge a bit of a community, basically. Get to know the other people who are just as interested. There's even the opportunity to get involved and become part of these communities. I'm lucky enough to have the chance to chat with Casey Cantwell, Operations Chief for the NOAA Ocean Exploration Expeditions and the Exploration Division. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Always love talking to people about the work we do. Well, then let's do it. Let's get excited about the work we do, because that's uh, that's very much a theme for the show. We'll have a lot of listeners who maybe aren't aware of the phenomenon of, of well, I, I picked up a new word from a friend of mine I was asking about this, dive streaming, which is just an adorable little play on words, which I'm going to start using. I haven't actually heard that one. That's great. It's adorable. Could you summarize just to begin with what it is and the, the vessels and technology that, that you use? Sure. So yeah, so I'm really privileged to work for NOAA Ocean Exploration, which is a really incredible organization that spends the majority of our time filling gaps in our knowledge about the deep sea. And we have the incredible opportunity to explore some of the most remote and unknown areas of our ocean and basically ask the foundational question of what's there and what do we know about it? and hope that we can sort of close some of the basic gaps in our knowledge and our understanding about those areas. What gear do you use? You've got some some excellent toys and vessels. We at NOAA Ocean Exploration use a couple different tools. The more traditional government role of you know grant making and partnerships, where we provide um, funding or in-kind contributions to work together with other organizations. But one of the things that I'm actually a big part of and that I love the most is we use NOAA Ship Okeanos Explorer as a way to explore the deep sea. So NOAA Ship Okeanos Explorer is the U.S.'s 
only federal ship dedicated to ocean exploration. We call her America's Ship for Exploration. <laughs> and it's one of the tools that we get to use to go thousands of miles offshore sometimes and explore miles deep and just see what's there. When I'm, say, talking to, to school kids about what I enjoy with my work, it's very likely that I will see something that no one has seen before. And there's that absolute moment of discovery and and being one of the first to see something. And you employ some very recent technology to allow both other scientists and the general public to feel a part of that. You stream your dives directly from the vessel. Yeah. So one of the really cool things about what we do is we've taken the traditional aspects of being at sea where you've got maybe 20 to 30 scientists out at sea and they're on a boat and they're conducting great science. And we've kind of opened that up to the world. So on board, we have a remotely operated vehicle. We actually have two of them, ROV Deep Discoverer and Sirius. So those two vehicles are tethered to the ship, which means that we get to see really cool stuff that's brought back in just a couple seconds from the seafloor all the way back to us, which can we can sometimes be miles away. Like I said, we go down to 6,000 meters. So sometimes the vehicles are quite far away from us. And then there's about a one to two second delay before we're able to share all of that, whatever it is that we're seeing in real time with folks on shore. It's amazing that we can achieve that right now through satellites, actually just with a few seconds other scientists and the general public are seeing things for the first time as you do on one of these expeditions because they're, they're often the pinch point. I'm, I'm so lucky if I get a berth on a vessel. I'm so lucky to be able to be out there and experience those things. And this technology just blows that exclusivity apart and everyone can be involved and everyone can be a part of this. Yeah. So one of the things that I absolutely love about exploration is you never know what you're going to find. So I've been out on missions where we have gone from looking at hydrothermal vents to deep sea coral and sponge habitats to being deep, deep, deep in a trench environment. And we're looking at old, old geological forms that no one's ever seen before. And then the next day we're diving on, in this case, it was a, an aircraft that had been lost in World War II. And the variety of things that we encompass with our operations and that we see in ocean exploration really requires a diverse team in order to support it. So in order to jump from hydrothermal vents to corals, to shipwrecks, to deep trench work, we have to be able to have a science team that is just as flexible and just as comprehensive as the habitats that we're going to encounter. So we use a technology called telepresence which is really a fancy term for pretty much the technology that we all use in our everyday life now. It's the same kind of technology you use to stream Netflix or the same technology that we're using right now to talk to each other. And that tech is what we can use to bring the deep sea to you at home and to bring it to you live so that you can be a part of this expedition. When you're filling those berths, you don't know what you're going to find. So, you know, what experts do you pick? What taxonomic experts do you bring along in the, say, maybe four or five berths that are available on the vessel? But now you see something totally unusual that's maybe from an animal group that you don't see very often and there aren't many experts on. And then the Twitter community will ping that image to, <laughs> to the expert that they've sort of earmarked. And we see community and distributed science happening live. I think one of the things that I love the most about it is that 
it's exactly like you said, we don't know what we're going to see. And that's what makes what we do so special and so unique. And what we've chosen on board the vessel that we use is to prioritize, I'll call them technicians. So folks that are subject matter experts in the technical aspects of the work that they do. They are engineers, they are data engineers, they're remotely operated vehicle pilots. They're basically a team that allows us to get the best quality imagery and send it to shore as quickly as possible. And then the majority of our actual science team, though, the folks that are, are looking at these unique environments and determining what's there and what, what the habitat looks like, what the community is. Answering the question of what is that, those <laughs> folks are largely on shore. And we've done that intentionally so that we can have as many births as possible dedicated to actually supporting the operations versus having to pick and choose which scientists we bring out. So we only bring out typically two to three scientists on each mission. And it's usually a one subject matter expertise each. And their role is actually to be the team lead for that field, to speak for the folks that are on shore, to engage them, to empower them, to really make sure that we are doing the best possible science that we can and that the folks who are on shore feel heard and feel empowered. And it's their job to sort of facilitate that process. They're sort of your elected representative. They're, uh, exactly. they're the single person who is enacting the will of the group. Yeah. Yeah. They're the team captains. I like it. One of the things that I really enjoy about this and, and part of the, the aspect of this show is the humanizing of scientists. I think the way that we write professionally, which is how we maintain our rigor, is very dry and very impersonal because you want to try and remove as much personal bias as possible. And that has created the idea that that's who we are as people and that we're a bit cold and we're a bit ivory tower and we're a bit distant. And I will never get tired of hearing someone who really genuinely loves what they research getting giddy, getting like really, <laughs> really animated over what they're seeing. Like I always love the audio that comes along with like some of these incredible, incredible deep sea footage. And then there is someone who it's their absolute passion in life, losing their mind. <laughs> and, it's, and it's so endearing. And it's so it's so humanizing. It's lovely to see scientists sort of enjoying their work. When we bring people out on the ship, one of the first things that I tell them is to share your passion. It took a lot of time and effort and energy for you to get to this point, for you to have finished your degree, to do the work that you're doing, to become an expert in your field. But you had to have a lot of passion to get to this point. And what gets you through the long nights, the terrible tests, the, the points where you hit a wall is that passion and love for what we do and love for ocean exploration and love for the deep sea. So I always am telling people to just share it. That's part of this. As much as we are out here doing science, we're also out here sharing what we do. And there's an engagement and outreach and education portion of the work that we do that is also equally important. Sharing what we do is just as important as the work that we do. And sometimes that's really hard for scientists. So I actually love exactly what you're describing. It's one of my favorite points. There's two things that I love when we're doing our work. One is just like you said, the times where you're just like, what on earth is this? And people are so excited. I like I can think of those moments from almost every expedition I've been out on times that you just couldn't stop smiling. Sometimes it was an unexpected shipwreck that we just discovered. Sometimes it was a brittle star, which is something that lives on the ground that reached up and grabbed a squid out of the water column yeah. and then proceeded to eat it. Uh, another time you're it meant was... to be a filter feeder. What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. What, what on earth are you doing eating a squid that is the same size as your body probably give me the tipex little... give me the tipex all this is wrong <laughs> it's like i don't understand what this is another time we had just come upon a recently deceased uh swordfish and 
all of those scenes that you see from Blue Planet and all the nature documentaries where you see sharks just like tearing into like a, we call them whale falls. And this is an important part of what we know about the deep sea and the connection to the surface is anything that comes down into the deep sea becomes a source of food for the organisms that live down here. That's how the entire ecosystem survives in many cases. So those opportunities to see that are rare and usually they're staged. For us, we actually came across a recently dead swordfish and it was being eaten by sharks. And as we sat there, we sat there from two and a half hours or so and we just watched this swordfish be completely demolished. And on one hand, we just didn't have words for it or just most of it was, oh my gosh, this is amazing. (laughs) And on the other hand, you're also like, this is a really, really cool process. And I don't know how many times someone has filmed this when you've just stumbled upon it. Most of the time it's staged. And it's a really cool thing to film. Even when it's staged, it's really unique. But to have just happened upon it, we were actually looking for a shipwreck that day. It was not a shipwreck, but we found something really cool instead. And I think that times like that are really when I personally begin to appreciate the way we do business and this telepresence model is that we had an entire team of about 20 to 30 archaeologists on the line and talking to us, looking for this shipwreck. And this was a a really incredible target. We had been looking for um, the Bloody Marsh, which we just actually a couple months ago found, finally, after like four years of looking for it. We were working with these archaeologists and we circumnavigated this whole target. Well, are we ready to call that it's not a shipwreck? Because you have to kind of go through the whole process in the area, non-invasive archaeology. So we're looking around. We haven't collected any samples all day. And we're just like, all right, I think we have covered this entire target. It's not a shipwreck. We're kind of at the point where we need to say, let's proceed with just a regular exploration dive. Let's go look at the beautiful coral communities. Let's get some size estimates on those sponges over there. It was a really diverse coral and sponge area that we we had found, which is also incredibly valuable. It just wasn't the shipwreck. So you see this natural transition begin to happen between our science teams. So our archaeologists kind of slowly begin fading out and being like, yep, this isn't a shipwreck. And the biologists and the geologists come in and sort of start taking over. And they start talking about, all right, well, let's go get some measurements on that sponge over there. That's not one that's known from this area. You know, this coral is really interesting. It's a very different type of coral that we've had at this particular location than where we were just two days ago. And then we find the swordfish. You've essentially just had a crew change. You, yes. That's not possible in the traditional way we do this. You, nope. An opportunity presented itself and suddenly like, yeah, you've, you've done a crew change without missing a beat. It's, it's an incredibly dynamic way of sort of rolling with the punches because we don't know what we're going to find when we stick cameras down these places. And and that's what the beauty of telepresence is. We didn't know what it was. And we typically on these missions will have about 300 scientists or so sort of sign up to pay attention and to be on our listserv and usually are just kind of like, a lot of them are kind of passive until something exciting interests them. But then we have about 100 to 140 or so scientists typically that are just actively engaged and are there every day participating with us. And some days when we're super, super deep, you're not going to have the shallower coral scientists participating, but you're going to have some really exciting geologists who are wanting to see deep into the bottom of a feature and see what that transition point looks like and what we can learn about geologic history. So this ability to be interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary is so unique with telepresence that it honestly allows us to have a bigger set of a science team than we could ever possibly have with just being on the vessel alone. 
there's not a single science vessel out there that can accommodate as many people as we have engaged in every mission we do. Not 300. (laughs) And then a changing 300. We had a chat with Mike Vicchioni a couple of episodes back, and he was sort of being asked by the, the media, like, how are you going to, to do this? How are you going to see more of these particular big fin squid that they're interviewing about? And he said, like, you, you can't plan an expedition to see these. It has to be opportunistic. We just need as many eyes in the deep sea as possible to roll with the punches. And when an opportunity arises, you know, when an, an interesting observation comes our way, we get that in front of the relevant experts who can then decode that for us. And this just seems like the mature, complete version of that have access to this huge wealth of knowledge that you wouldn't be able to fit on the boat. He's exactly right. And that's exactly what we do. We've worked with Mike for a really long time, actually. And the best thing is that we don't know when we're going to see a squid or an octopus. I can tell you, though, every time we do, he's on the phone in about five, 10 minutes and we're talking about it. <laughs> he loves this stuff. <laughs> he does. And he's wonderful. Yeah. And we actually have a great partnership with the Smithsonian and where Mike works is the um, National Systematics Lab from NOAA. And those two organizations really support our operations because it gives curators the opportunity to see so many of the organisms alive for the first time. And you also get these really unique special instances where they're seeing things like, I didn't know that was still alive. Like, this is something we know from the fossil record. This is very unusual. So we had this, uh, so it's a snail and it lives on a stalked crinoid, which kind of looks like a giant feather duster. (laughs) And we're sitting there and we're looking at it. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. It looks like it's laying eggs. And one of the gentlemen, Chris Ma from the Smithsonian, hops on the line and starts telling us, So this is really cool because we haven't seen this anywhere except for in the fossil record from the Paleozoic. (laughs) I don't really know what to tell you this is because I I don't have words. (laughs) And that's the other time that I absolutely love, not only when scientists are really excited, but also when they're stumped. The line gets really, really quiet and everyone's just kind of sitting there staring at the screen and just like, what? So what is this? Silence. Well, so can you tell us a little bit more about what we're looking at? Silence. What? (laughs) And over the years, I've come to learn that that's either, yeah, it's awe or they're just like, I don't know. And they're not sure what to say because this is really rare. Or we've seen things in the Pacific Basin that are only known from the Caribbean, are only known from the Atlantic. Or we've seen corals deeper than they've been known to exist anywhere. And those types of things, we get really excited about them because as scientists, this is why we're doing this, to learn more about these organisms, to learn more about the features that we're observing. But at the same time, I'm beginning to think that some of these things that we're so excited about because they're so rare or they're new or they're unique, that they're not as rare or new as, and unique as we think they are. It's just that we haven't seen much of the deep sea. Yeah. So little of the deep sea has been explored that it's it's, the data is rare. It's just hard to know what is actually rare or not. The sponge that I was talking about that is only known from the Atlantic that we found in the Pacific, there might be hundreds of thousands of those sponges in the Pacific Basin. It might be more common. It might be more <laughs> common there than it is here. Yeah. But if you're only looking at a small portion of an area, the distance that we can cover during an ROV dive is like 10 to 15 football fields. Think about that. The distance that you or I could cover in maybe like 
15 minutes of running, just back and forth, back and forth, back and mm. forth, forth across the football field. That's about how much distance we cover with an, a remotely operated vehicle dive. And that's because every minute we're sitting there and we're looking at something new or different and we're getting really good quality imagery because a lot of the times no one will ever come here again. There's so mm -hmm. much of our ocean that's unexplored that you have to take advantage of every opportunity to gather data that you have because you might never be here again. Literally, someone may never see this seafloor again. And that's particularly true in like really rare areas or really remote areas or places that people haven't been before. Like someone may never be here again. So you have to do your best to document as much as you can while you're there. And you're huge and sort of sprawling science. Is, is it community more than team? I, I feel like we've crossed a bit of a boundary, but seeing that gastropod, seeing that snail lay those eggs, you need the knowledgeable pair of eyes looking at that to say that that's something unusual because sometimes the the really surprising the really unusual things they require that trained eye to give it context i might say like oh that that's a pretty snail that's interesting but <laughs> i'm horribly biased let's go look for some fish and that's why this huge community almost removes any bias from the science i, I can remember doing some some rov ops where we were all taking it in turns to log what was going on and you could absolutely guess what that person's area of expertise was based on their logs Purple thing, red thing, purple thing, <laughs> and then a Latin name. <laughs> and, and having this diverse group, you know, you're going to spot the subtle but really important things. So you're going to let me talk about every part of my job that I love, aren't you? Let's go. So one of the things that I honestly am most proud of our organization for doing and that I feel is really one of the most important things that we do is it's not the actual science that we conduct. While that is incredibly important and really useful, but it's how we conduct science. So we talked a little bit about the telepresence aspect and how we conduct like we're diving here today, let's go. But there are months and months and months of planning that goes into deciding that we're going to dive here today. And most people don't get to see that. But during that process, what we are doing during all that planning is we are developing a community. And we like just to say that our operations are community driven. And what that means is that we're not out there investigating my personal questions as the operations chief, or even the personal questions of the people who are serving the role that would traditionally be called a, a chief scientist. Our team is of expedition coordinators, and they manage an expedition on behalf of the science community and on behalf of the resource management community. We're not out there answering any one person's questions, but rather have worked with the science community and have developed these priorities and got a good understanding of where the gaps are. Where don't you have information? What questions can't you even ask yet because you don't have enough basic understanding here? And that's the niche that we fill. We let the community guide us. We let the community help us and really become invested in our operations in a really unique way that doesn't really exist elsewhere because we are focused on meeting their needs. And for some people, when they're first encountering us or they're first working with us, they're a little bit hesitant of, you want me to share data with you and you're just going to give me this for free. They're like, you want me to just tell you where I think you should go and you're just going to Give me the data for free. There, there's no catch here. Yes, that's literally it. We are doing this on behalf of future generations of scientists who will use those data, of the kids that are in school right now who will grow up to use the data that we collected a couple years ago, because they'll realize that something that we just kind of looked at as a purple thing, as you said, or a <laughs> pink thing or a green thing, or we just kind of went past it because we didn't know much about it then. But someone will look at that data set and say, that's rare. 
I've not seen that before. And that's the most exciting part about what we do. We collect data and it's made publicly accessible only a couple months after we collect it. We feed it into national data archives. We feed it into data models. And basically our team then moves on to the next site, to the next priority. We don't operate in the traditional chief scientist or principal investigator model where you're out there to answer a specific question. You've been, you spent months or years building up to the specific scientific question. You collect that data, you publish it, you go through um, robust peer review to really make sure that you've gotten every aspect of your, your scientific um, process ironed out, and then you share it with the community. We kind of skip all the middle part and just go from collect data, share with community and say, <laughs> have at it. Like this is, we are a resource to you all. We're not here to sort of own the science. It probably comes off a little strange to people at first, but once they get a chance to kind of experience it and really how flexible we are, how receptive we are to others' ideas and how this community really embraces the work that we do because it fills a very unique role that we get to go places that not many people have ever been. And we get to collect that initial data set that then helps them later guide further expeditions. It helps them later compete for funding to go and ask those scientific questions. We help them generate questions versus answering questions in many cases. As a part of this, I mean, it's all been absolutely lovely so far, but there's an, an even extra lovely bit. This is a great remover of boundaries. People from developing nations who couldn't afford to join a scientific cruise or people with limited mobility or other disabilities that makes actually going to sea impossible. How do we make this accessible to everyone? Because just the nature of being at sea is physical and is difficult. How can we share this? And I feel like this is it. This is doing it. One of the things the, about the way that we do business and the way that we conduct our operations that is so special is exactly what you're describing. It's the ability to democratize ocean exploration and really take away some of the barriers the, that pro prohibit or prevent people from, from joining. Ocean exploration fundamentally is full of barriers. And those are not just the traditional barriers that you described based on if people have disabilities, if they have family commitments, or just generally if you're from a marginalized group that hasn't had access to the same opportunities. All of those things play into every STEM workforce development issue. But then you add in the limited availability of ship time. You add in the limited availability of deep sea assets and your pool of potential people just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And on top of all that, just that there are limited resources and limited assets, it's expensive. It's very yeah. expensive to go to sea. So you have to be at well-established institutions to be able to compete well. You have to be sort of in, in the know, in the community. And it can get this really exclusionary club-like feel. And one of the things that is so incredible about what telepresence has done for this community, for our field, is that it has taken away that barrier. And that is so incredibly exciting. I've had people who are recovering from surgeries that would have prevented them from going to sea or someone um, several years ago reached out to me and said like, I used to be an oceanographer and I got into a car accident and essentially had to make a career change because I could no longer go to sea and because I'm wheelchair bound. But being able to participate in your expeditions is something that I have missed and something that I, I had only ever dreamed that I would ever be able to do again. And That's those incredible. are the, 
the special moments that are so cool. And that's for physical limitations. But then you look at like opportunities for students that don't come from the big traditional deep sea science or deep ocean exploration institutions, where they see our data that it's public, it's free, it's new enough that they can still find something that's really exciting and interesting, and they'll still have a unique spin on it. And that is incredible. They don't need to come from the same institutions that have always been supported with deep ocean science. They can just have a computer or internet and be able to pull down any number of potential discoveries or potential projects that are waiting for them. Just recently, a a colleague of mine was helping a student and due to COVID, he couldn't go to sea. And his entire project that he had spent uh, like years working on was ruined because he couldn't go collect the data. So that's a, another barrier that you add to this field. You have to be at sea in order to collect data. Look at the data that we have. Like, you're really interested in this. We have data that's like that already. Why don't you just use this? And it's free. It's public. You can have access to it today if you want. And this is sort of, in my mind, one of the the beautiful legacy that we have done with our investments in telepresence and with what not just us, but other partner organizations have really made sure that as many doors to people that are interested in science and people who are interested in the deep sea are open as possible. And that's a really, really cool thing that we've been able to do. How did you fare through the pandemic? Of course, this very different way of doing work presents its unique issues. It was very, very hard to move around and to get people on and off vessels for the last two years. Yeah, so it was definitely challenging. I have read more public health documents than I ever thought I would. (laughs) Uh, And uh, there's been a new logistical challenge that's added in to anyone who goes to seas. But honestly, we struggled probably a lot less than most. We had to replan our field season. We had originally planned to be at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and be able to do this really collaborative international project that we've been working on for a couple of years now. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be able to do it now this year. But last year, we were kind of staying close to shore, making sure that if someone did come down with COVID, that we were able to get them back to healthcare as much as possible. And back to a home port. Correct. It was definitely a unique challenge from the mission planning standpoint. Honestly, from the public side of it, from the mission execution side, not much was different. All of this investment that we had done for years in telepresent science made it so that we were able to pretty quickly pivot. We were more prepared, I think, than most to be able to do that and to be able to adapt to it because the majority of our team has always been on shore. Essentially, you guys are already doing remote working. Exactly. (laughs) You'd already adapted to this before the rest of us had to. Exactly. And part of the sort of democratizing and the opening up of this as an access point is beyond career scientists, there is a, a huge public following. Whole communities have grown up around watching these streams. What do you think about this sort of more public community? I absolutely love it. It is always really cool to be able to talk to folks, especially young kids who are really excited about the ocean or just excited to hear that this is a career path. And honestly, for us, it's not just the kids that are interested in science. We have a lot of different career paths to get you into our operations. We have some folks who were artists in school, some folks that are professional videographers, some broadcast engineers, people that are robotics engineers. And we have several people on board the ship that have 
incredibly diverse backgrounds and they're professional mariners or they're officers with the NOAA Corps. There's just so many ways that you can be a part of this. Use it however you want. You know, you touched upon art. We are scientists and we want to generate data and generate discoveries from this stuff. But you may be just as inspired as a poet, as, a, as an illustrator. There's nothing exclusionary about this data. This is incredible images of the natural world, which people can take all sorts of different things from. There's an incredible program that's run by Schmidt Ocean Institute called their Artist at Sea program. Yes. And it is fascinating to see what, <laughs> like I look at the data that we collect and I see ones and zeros. I see, okay, this is what the seafloor looks like. This is what the organisms that are there. Or I've spent years kind of building up my own brain's filter but then you see what an artist sees in looking at the same information that I see. And I am blown away when you go see those exhibits. Someone who's not as close to it, not in the, as in the weeds as you are. And it's really, really inspiring. One of the things I enjoyed most was an illustrator that I follow. And actually, this is how I found them and would just do illustrations sort of based on what was going on. And they did this really beautiful one of it was the chimera and then deep sea scientists discover a new fish and spend 10 minutes telling it how beautiful it is. <laughs> And then there was this beautiful illustration of a of a chimera like blushing and putting its pectoral fins up to its cheeks like it was a bit sort of shy, but kind of liking it at the same time. That is amazing. I'll track it down for you. I might even get Please, in touch with and see awesome. if we can use it. That level of creativity and sort of fun and that sense of community that just forms organically around what's going on here. I have a um, actually hung up in my in my office when I when I don't work from home, I have a drawing that someone did from a, a mission years and years ago. We had found this really incredible sponge garden and they drew the sponge garden that we found and put like little like googly eyes and like little smiles on them and like gave them all their own unique like personality. And some of them had little hats, some of them had little bows and they sent it just basically as a like, I know you guys probably aren't going to like, this isn't going to mean anything to you guys, but I found this to be the most inspirational, like 24 hours that I was, that I had. And I, I couldn't not draw this when I saw this picture. Yeah. We love it. Just the we coolest thing. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Never hesitate from sending things like that. in because we absolutely love it. <laughs> I absolutely agree. <laughs> It's always really cool to hear about how people have been touched by the work that we do. And sometimes you forget the impact that you have on others. Like when we do public events and stuff, we pretty much always have at least a couple of people who are like, I've been following you guys for years. Like, this is so cool. You're like, oh, really? We're a weird insular bunch and we are immensely flattered if we reach anyone and even more fascinated if they can interpret and get from what we see every day, something that we totally missed. It's beautiful. I completely agree. Follow along with us. We spent a lot of time here talking about how cool this world is and how exciting it is that you can watch it at home, but actually do it. Like go on <laughs> oceanexplorer.noaa.gov and follow along with us. We're mapping right now part of the Caribbean that's never been mapped before. So if you tune in right now, you'll see a bunch of data acquisition screens. And in a couple months, we will be able to actually bringing back live seafloor images again. A couple more mapping cruises coming up as we work our way north again and then out to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And then in the summer, we will actually have two more remotely operated vehicle cruises where you can figure out all the crazy things that we're going to see right along with us. Fantastic. Definitely sign into that. If you're working on dual monitors, just always have the other one open and you never know when something 
fascinating that actually might be an absolute scientific breakthrough that you're witnessing firsthand along with the people operating it. Don't do it while you're studying for a test or prepping for a big meeting or something. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. I'm excited to uh, see the next season. Yeah, it should be really cool. Mid-Atlantic Ridge is something that we've been working on for a long time. So I am so excited that it's finally happening. I look forward to watching because I can. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank thank you so much. So on the last episode, we officially released our merch or high quality produce. And thank you to everyone who's bought stuff already. It uh, it does help support the podcast. Not much, but a little bit goes our way from them. And uh, I don't know, I like to think that they're in the real world, that there's people wearing a Deep Sea Podcast t-shirt, maybe. And tote bags, apparently. People like the tote bags. I'm not, I'm not satisfied. What? Because the apron? Because there's not an apron still. Apparently, according to you, we have a significant fan base, which I don't believe. I wanted to see the fan base around the world baking in Deep Sea Podcast aprons. Actually, how do I know that you've ever actually put this out? It's true. That's true. I mean, you've confessed multiple times. You don't listen to me. Might just be having a chat. I might just be lonely. I'm do- actually, I've got. I've got a co- I have a confession to make, Tom. Really? Because I bet this will come as a massive surprise. I've never listened to an episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. I know, mate. I know you haven't listened to an episode. <laughs> it's not entirely true. I listen to all the edits, the the, the drafts. Yes. So you know, you listen to them for any uh, anything that's going to get us in too much trouble uh, before I put them but out. The actual final one, when it comes out, I, I, I just don't do podcasts. That's when I go nuts. I give you a silly voice to slander you. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking that maybe I should have a little. Just a little check. check. I mean, maybe I've hidden Easter eggs for you. So I know the day when you start listening to them. As I get like 200 missed calls at 3am in the morning, I was like, oh good, he's listened. I just (laughs) think maybe the whole thing's a lie. Maybe this thing hasn't been happening at all. Because if no one sent me a picture of them baking in a Deep Sea Podcast apron, then we don't have a fan base. If we don't have a fan base, who are you referring to? Whenever you say, oh yeah, you know, the feedback has been everyone loves Dawn and all that kind of stuff. Are you just making it up? Yeah, I'm just lonely. I just do it for the attention. Right. (laughs) Well, I'm walking away right now. Fair enough. That's insert, just a, there's a final episode. In, insert slam door sound there. <laughs> of course, we can't mention an element of ocean research or technology without it turning out that, of course, Don was involved in the early days. So with a story about the early days of remotely operated vehicles, here's Don. Hello, this is oceanographer and explorer Don Walsh. And in this commentary... I'd like to talk to you about remotely operated vehicles, or ROVs. To ROV or not to ROV, that is the question. First, what is an ROV? Basically, it's an unmanned submersible, which is controlled by an umbilical cable from a surface ship where the vehicle operator or pilot sits in front of a large television display and is able to control the movements of the vehicle while it is submerged. The uh, simplest of these tethered vehicles are not much more than swimming TV cameras that are used for simple inspection tasks. At the far end of the scale are the large multi-million dollar work ROVs that can do many of the jobs underwater that were formerly done by divers or even by the use of manned submersibles. However, the ROV is much less costly to build and operate than a manned system and does not have depth limits that divers encounter 
in working underwater. Also, they're particularly good in applications where you're concerned about the safety of a diver or of a man submersible. And in case of an accident, you don't have to write a letter to the widow. You just have to get a replacement vehicle. Now let's look at the history of the ROV's evolution. They first began to be developed at the Navy Electronics Laboratory in San Diego in the early 1960s. And at that time, I was assigned to that laboratory, which we called NEL, as the officer in charge of the Navy's Bathyscaph Trieste, a two-person man submersible capable of diving to any depth in the world ocean. Now we had the capability to take the trained eye and the trained mind to the work site at any depth in the world ocean. We call this in situ oceanography, in situ meaning being at the place of work. Now at that time, there were only two of these in situ platforms for undersea work in the world. One was the Trieste, and the other was the French Navy Bathyscaph FNRS-3. Well, this seems a bit backwards in most uh, technological evolutions of vehicles to do work, such as in space or on land. You develop the robots first, then you develop the manned capabilities for these vehicles. But in the case of the two bathyscaphs, it was easier to put a human inside than to develop a robotic version of these submersibles because of the very limited technologies we had available to us in the late 50s and very early 60s. These technologies were things such as the battery power, the instrumentation on board, and uh, other items that required a large amount of space or power. Simply put, it was easier to put humans in there with their great computational capabilities, the human brain, than it was to devise systems on board that would take up a lot of space and not be as efficient. Of course, the march of technology and capabilities over several decades have eliminated the need for a human. And today we have very competent underwater unmanned vehicles that can do most of the tasks that a manned submersible can do. After their ROV development programs, NEL began to work on another family of underwater unmanned vehicles, the AUVs, Autonomous Untethered Vehicles. These were actually free-swimming robots which were programmed before their mission, went off and did the mission, and then came back to the surface and were hoisted aboard the mothership and their data was downloaded from the vehicle. So basically these were not controlled while they're on the mission, but pre-programmed for the mission and sent on their way into the depths. By the uh, early 1970s, NEL had pretty much gotten out of the developmental work of unmanned uh, submersibles as the commercial sector picked up significant interest in that area and began to field commercial systems that have continued to evolve until today. And today, there are thousands of ROVs working all over the world and perhaps hundreds of AUVs working all over the world. And there have been some notable successes. Two ROVs have gone to the deepest place in the world ocean, the Challenger Deep. The Japanese Kaiko, which is their word for deep ocean trench, and the Nereus, which was built by the Woods Hole 
oceanographic institution. Uh, Kaiko has been to that deepest place twice and nearest once. Sadly, both of them were lost at sea on subsequent diving operations. In recent years, the AUVs have enjoyed some spectacular success. Perhaps the first was uh, by the late founder of Microsoft, Paul Allen, who was doing underwater archaeology with his specialized ship Petrol, and it's on board AUV. He was able to find a World War II warship at a depth of nearly 20,000 feet. And then more recently, the uh, stunning underwater imagery of Shackleton's ship Endurance that was filmed on the seafloor by an AUV that was launched through the ice in the Weddell Sea. While there will always be a place for manned submersibles, I do believe that the heavy lifting in doing in-situ research in the world ocean, both for commercial operations and scientific work, will be with the use of unmanned platforms such as ROVs and AUVs. But you can be involved as well. You can get a personal one for your swimming pool or pleasure boat for less than $100. And with it, you can have a maximum depth capability of perhaps between 50 and 100 feet. That's where all the action is. So while you may not make great science discoveries or find lost treasures, you will discover new fun experiences. So be the first kid on the street to be an underwater explorer with your unmanned submersible. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for listening. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you would like to write in with questions, comments, or just to say hi, the email is in the show notes, along with our social media as well, if that's how you prefer to interact with people. I'll also include the links to all of these streaming expeditions that we've discussed, some of the communities, but I bet there's many that I don't know about, but it might just be enough to give you a way in to this whole world of deep sea exploration that you can take part in from home. On the next episode, hopefully Alan is going to be back in the UK and we may have access to that studio again. So it'll be good to have a proper catch up to be in the same room without a delay from uh, circumventing the planet. Looking forward to that. Also, we are currently hiring and anyone who is a listener is probably most of the way towards being qualified. We're hiring a UK based position for a science communicator. It'll be quite a varied role, uh, working a lot with me. We will manage the sort of social media and online presence. Anyone who follows our social media channels will realize that we don't maybe talk as much as we could. And that's just because of the, the huge workload. With a little bit of help there, I've got some ideas for some fun things we can do. Uh, most importantly, this person will hopefully bring some of their own ideas and we can work on some projects together. There'll also be elements of helping with the podcast, helping with editing, helping lining up guests, helping to promote it. So it is an entry-level position. The details of the job advert are in the show notes. And as ever, we'll deep see you next time and we wish you all ready. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company Armatus Oceanic. If you would like to explore the deep sea yourself, we can support you with logistics, technology, know-how, cruise planning. But if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience, we can also help you with storytelling, podcasting, 
presentations, fact-checking, however we can, basically. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. frothy one that has been brewing in the wardrobe with me for the last half hour that's a nice hot wardrobe beer piping hot <sighs> it's nice. what is it it's a asahi asahi super dry oh nice ah japan's number one beer fair enough so i just, just literally read that off the box <laughs> well they would know yeah they wouldn't lie would they <laughs> no, you, can, you can't lie you can't lie in advertising you know gonna say japan's number eight beer <laughs> quite popular in japan <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the bit at the end, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.